We are continuing with the reading of excerpts from the book Legendary Lake Pondaray by Jane Fritz and Friends, and read by Jane Fritz. Area 6, Clark Forked Cabinet Gorge. Overview. Along Highway 200, the last town you pass before the Montana state line, is the small community of Clark Fork. Named for Captain William Clark of the Lewis and Clark Expedition, the Clark's Fork of the Columbia River flows for more than 400 miles through western Montana on its way to Lake Pondray. Most of the shoreline on either side of the river is privately owned, including Avista's Cabinet Gorge Dam. From this stretch of the Clark Fork, there are remarkable places to discover. Scotchman Peak, the highest mountain in the region at 7,009 feet, is a spectacular destination for hiking in the West Cabinets and home to shaggy white mountain goats. Looking like a great woman lying on her back, the peak is visible from the center of Clark Fork and the western stretch of the river before Antelope Mountain blocks the view. Antelope Lake, a small high mountain lake, perfect for family fishing, is less than a mile from Highway 200. If you linger a while at the wildlife viewing area near Durr Creek, you might see elk or peregrine falcons perched on the cliffs to the south. From October through June, fish can be seen at the Cabinet Gorge Fish Hatchery, built to augment the wild kokanee population in Lake Ponderay. Lastly, there is the Cabinet Gorge Dam, built in 1952 to generate hydroelectricity. It's a lovely drive to Montana, but if traveling by powerboat, you can't go too far upriver because of the dam. A launch site for kayaks and canoes is along the north side of the river, but boating of any kind is not recommended from early May to early July since the current can be very fast. Greater than 90% of the water in Lake Ponderay comes from the Clark Fork watershed, so the river flows can be dangerous, even for experienced whitewater paddlers. And swimming is best done in some of the sheltered coves and backwaters of the river because of its powerful current. Drownings do occur. Snowmelt that comes from the surrounding mountains has contributed to significant floods in this part of the watershed, even after the dam was built. Because of the wild tributaries that feed the river, this area is also good for catching native fish, especially fly fishing for cutthroat, brown, and rainbow trout. And on mountain and ridgeline trails, there are both spectacular views of the lake and magnificent views of the river delta that nourishes Lake Ponderay. Anecdota, River of Rainbows. As a teenager, the first cast that Christian Thompson made with his fly rod in the Clark Fork River became a rite of passage. Fishing was in his blood, a tradition among the men in his family, like hunting big game. His dad, Terry, had fished the Clark Fork all his life, while his grandfather Milton preferred fishing the big lake. That transition from salmon eggs on a hook, the way he fished as a kid, 
to the art of enticing a trout to rise to the surface from the river's depths and snatch a feathered muddler on the end of his dancing fly line took considerable skill and grace. The magic and intensity of that first communion with the river and its aquatic life not only made his dad proud, the experience has stayed with Christian all his life. You cast out there, and the sun is reflecting off the water, and you see the fly floating down the river, and as it finally trails off at the end of the riffle, all of a sudden you see this huge body of the fish roll over and sink your fly. Your heart jumps, and you pull your fly rod up taut into the air, and the next thing you know, you have this rainbow leaping out of the water. The river is flowing fast, and a 16-inch trout feels like it weighs 30 pounds, and you're fighting to get that fish into the bank, he says. There's excitement as well as adventure in trying to fish the Clark Fork, but most people don't have the patience. Sometimes you have to stand thigh-deep in the river in your waders and cast for hours until you snag a fish. Christian recalls one October day when he chose to go fishing alone instead of elk hunting with his dad, a break from family tradition. Fishing his favorite mile of the river between Cabinet Gorge Dam and the Delta, he caught not only the two biggest fish of his lifetime, but also created for himself a lifelong philosophy about fishing. I was fishing with a streamer pattern that I tied myself because I was really into tying my own flies. I fished for six hours and caught only two fish. Ah, but the fish I had caught. The first one was a rainbow, and it was over 20 inches. It was a pretty intense moment, and it took me a long time to bring that fish in. Then I let it go. It seemed like the right thing to do at the time, and not more than 30 minutes later, I caught an 18-inch cutthroat, he says. It was an exhilarating experience of being on his own and fishing his own way. What was his dad's response? Tie me more flies, Terry exclaimed. For Christian, it was another fly-fishing rite of passage. Returning the fish to the river was also a break from tradition. Since Christian grew up in a family where fishing was also a means of putting food on the table and providing subsistence. With that in mind, he sees it as his responsibility to the larger fishing community to release most of the fish he catches. He wants to protect those big fish in the river so other people can have similar exciting experiences while fishing. I love to eat trout, and I do keep them, but I'm mindful of how many I keep and the limit that the law says I can keep. But that's not what governs my choice. It's what is the decent thing for me to do for the next person. I love my community, too, he says. With the construction and operation of the Cabinet Gorge Hydroelectric Project, the Clark Fork River is more nuanced than it was before. It is always changing, and Christian says it takes time to get to know the river, and get a feel for its ebb and flow. If you fish and don't catch a single thing one day, it doesn't mean there are no fish there. It's like getting to know a person, 
It's just one day in the river's life, and some days are better than others. The river will give more to someone who is patient and willing to let it be what it is. He also feels it is important for river anglers to know the history of the area and to contribute in some meaningful way to the natural environment so that it lasts. He loves the river and wants generations after him to love it too. Although public access to the Clark Fork River is limited, Christian believes that it shouldn't stop someone from fishing it. Respect for private lands and landowners go with the territory, he says. He always asks for permission to fish. Good stewardship of our lands and rivers starts by having good relationships with local landowners, he believes, and he never had anyone say no to his request to fish, even with no trespassing signs posted. It's also important to show reciprocity, he says, whether it's sharing your catch or simply sharing a story afterwards of how the day went. The bonus is that you might just create a relationship that could last a lifetime. It isn't privacy that protects and sustains the land. It is community, Christian believes. We need to understand this quickly, as things are developing so fast. We have to work together to maintain the resources. So don't act as if you have a right to be on that land. Be kind and humble about it. Christian Thompson is optimistic that new landowners settling here will be that way too. He says the fishing will only get better if the river's future care is grounded in respect. Fish Tales, a routine fishing trip by Patrick F. McManus. For 20 years, we had a place on the Clark Fork River near the town of Clark Fork. Nothing seemed to go right there. There were always problems. It was one of the few places in the world where I felt at home. One day, I got a call from a Portland TV producer that he was bringing a crew up to do a feature on me. I told him my friend Dave and I would meet him and his crew in Spokane, and they could follow us up to our fishing spot on the Clark Fork. The producer said that sounded great, just the sort of angle he was looking for. So Dave and I met them and started off toward the Clark Fork. I was driving my old truck with my canoe strapped to the top. As we were passing a tire company in the vicinity of Sandpoint, we heard the distinct sound of a flat tire thumping along at the rear of the truck. As it turned out, the spare was also flat. Usually, two of my tires go flat only when I'm far back in the mountains, but in this case, I had pulled right into the parking lot of a tire company. I explained to the TV crew that this sort of thing usually doesn't happen to me, but that I would buy a new tire from the tire company and get the other one repaired. The producer didn't react well to this news, apparently because he was working under certain time limits. I had heard of time limits before, but this was the only one I had ever experienced firsthand. It made me nervous. I ran into the tire company and told them what I needed. The manager said it would be two hours before they could get to me. I went out and told the producer this, and he started to jump up and down. 
I suggested they start shooting our fishing trip right then, even though there wasn't any water in sight. He said, okay, we might as well. Soon they had the TV cameras out, and we were about to start shooting footage of me pretending to change a tire, with the tire company in the background. At that point, the tire company manager came running out and said to stop filming. He could take care of me right then. Soon we were on the road again. Presently, we arrived at our fishing spot. It wasn't the fishing spot I had planned on, but a different one, because I had gotten distracted. Finally, though, we got the canoe launched on some section of the Clark Fork. It was then that I discovered we had forgotten the paddles. I say we for the reason that Dave is supposed to remind me of the paddles. I told the producer this wasn't a serious problem because Dave and I often used pieces of driftwood for paddles. The producer stopped jumping up and down, and his crew got out the cameras and started shooting footage of Dave and me paddling around with the pieces of driftwood. After a while, we caught a fish. It was about seven inches long. An hour or so later, we caught another one, but it was small. So far, the fishing trip had been pretty routine for Dave and me, but I could tell that the TV producer hadn't had much experience with fishing. I personally find fishing to be a relaxing activity, but the producer seemed on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Dave commented on that himself and wondered if perhaps the man had drunk too much coffee that morning. I suspected, however, that the producer simply hadn't fished a great deal. This turned out to be the case. Several weeks later, the TV station sent me copies of the feature, and it was wonderful. In the final segment, the announcer turns to the producer and says, I understand this is the first time you've ever gone fishing, John. And John says, Yeah, but never again. So it was just as I suspected. Wildlife Viewing, Peregrine Falcons This rarely seen bird of prey, or raptor, is featured on the Idaho Quarter. It's because a nonprofit organization, the Peregrine Fund of the World Center of Birds of Prey in Boise, Idaho, was instrumental in the falcon's recovery from near extinction. In 1970, the peregrine falcon was listed as a federal endangered species, as only 39 pairs of the birds were known to exist in the lower 48 due to pesticides, the primary cause for the species losing 80 to 90 percent of its former numbers. Ending the use of DDT was a critical factor in the bird's recovery. The peregrine fund overcame naysayers and incredible odds by implementing experimental breeding programs. Only a handful of peregrines had ever successfully bred in captivity, and none had been successfully released to breed in the wild. The first successful hatches occurred in 1973, and the first release occurred in 1974. By 1999, with more than 4,000 captive-raised peregrines released in 28 states, including here along the steep rocky cliffs on the south side of the Clark Fork River, the bird was removed from the endangered species list.
Historically, a desirable bird for falconers to hunt with, the adult male of the species is a strikingly handsome bird with its slate blue-gray back and white throat and long, narrow, pointed wings. Peregrine falcons are roughly crow-sized birds, but with a wingspan of nearly 40 inches. They hunt other birds while in flight. Songbirds, starlings, pigeons, blackbirds, jays, shorebirds, and waterfowl, and rarely take mammals or reptiles. The flight of the peregrine after prey, with its fast pursuit and spectacular dives, are stunning. Speeds have been clocked faster than 200 miles per hour. The peregrine falcon uses its feet and curved sharp talons to capture its prey and then uses its sharp hooked beak to kill what it has snared. They don't build nests, but lay their eggs usually near water and in a hollow on an inaccessible rocky cliff ledge. Like an eagle, the home of a peregrine is called an eyrie. The young falcons fledge five to six weeks after hatching, and like osprey, the bird will migrate to Central or South America, although sometimes peregrines south of Canada don't migrate and instead remain in their home habitat. To release captive-bred peregrines, young birds are placed in a special box on top of a man-made tower or cliff ledge. The birds are fed through a chute so they can't see their human benefactors. When they are old enough, the box is opened and the young peregrines begin testing their wings. Gradually, the feeding is reduced and the young falcons learn to hunt on their own. This process is known as hacking. A hack site on the cliff south of the Clark Fork River near Idaho Fishing Game's Durr Creek property proved successful for re-establishing peregrines in our area. Sometimes the falcons can be seen in this area performing their aerial acrobatics. An endangered species success story, there are now estimated to be about 1,200 breeding pairs of peregrine falcons in the lower 48 states. Carved by glacial ice and floods. About 11,000 years ago, the last ice age in the Pleistocene epoch ended in this region leaving behind today's vast and deep Lake Ponderay and its surrounding landscape, the result of glacial ice and floods that are among the greatest known to have occurred. In a fascinating book on the subject, Glacial Lake Missoula and its Humongous Floods, author David Alt ponders what kind of wildlife may have roamed here before massive floods washed them away. Mammoths, giant beavers, an oversized bison, and whether or not this catastrophic spectacle was witnessed by the ancestors of the Kalispell tribe. We can only imagine what they felt, he writes. The oral tradition of local tribes indeed recounts great floods that occurred long before the white man arrived. Several years ago, Spokane elder Pauline Flett told a traditional story on public radios, A Prairie Home Companion, with her telling it in Salish and Garrison Keeler retelling it in English. About a boy and a girl escaping the complete devastation of an enormous flood by climbing to the very top of Mount Spokane. As the legend goes, 
Once the waters receded, the young couple discovered salmon stranded in shallow rock basins, a fish they had not seen before. The melting waters from the glacial ice sheet, responsible for scouring the region and carving away at mountains, originated to the east in present-day western Montana and formed the enormous glacial Lake Missoula. As deep as 2,000 feet, Lake Missoula's natural drainage to the sea encountered a finger of ice from the ice sheet that formed in the Purcell Trench between the Cabinet and Selkirk mountain ranges and was blocked by a 3,000-foot-thick ice dam that formed here in the Clark Fork Valley near the present-day Idaho-Montana state line. At the south end of Lake Ponderay, the ice may have been as much as 5,000 feet thick. When the ice dam broke, it unleashed waters that rushed through the basin at speeds exceeding 65 miles per hour and at a volume 10 times that of all the rivers in the world today combined. It roared through the frozen basin that would become Lake Ponderay and across the Rathdrum Prairie and Spokane Valley before spilling south into the channeled Scabland. The dramatic episode that emptied Glacial Lake Missoula in a matter of a few days and shaped the topography of the area took place more than once. It is estimated that perhaps as many as a hundred such floods took place every 40 to 140 years during the last glacial cycle, between 13,000 to 18,000 years ago. Eventually, the ice receded northward, far enough so that the flood ceased and Lake Ponderay remained. Geological evidence of these roaring waters can be seen on both sides of the Clark Fork River. Studying the Ice Age floods helps scientists better understand natural cycles of climate change on Earth, as well as geologic processes on Mars, where landforms are strikingly similar to the Scablands. In 2001, the National Park Service submitted a report to the U.S. Congress proposing an Ice Age Floods National Geologic Trail that would be an interconnected network of trails and roads with interpretive centers extending across parts of Montana, Idaho, Washington, and Oregon. Legislation to create the National Trail moved slowly until Congress finally approved it in March of 2009. A nonprofit educational organization, the Ice Age Floods Institute, with a chapter in the Sandpoint area, worked for years to promote the trail. An interpretive site will likely be built in this area as part of a series of sites along flood routes. This remarkable geologic story, known to so few Americans, will be an exciting one to tell across the region. Lore Along the Shore, Kalispell Life at Cabinet Gorge. The Kalispell Indians traveled along the lower Clark Fork River by canoe and later by horseback along trails on the north side of the river. The people fished and camped where tributaries entered the river. A fall encampment was near present-day Clark Fork on Mosquito Creek. They hunted deer and woodland caribou in the surrounding mountains, and gathered many plants, including hemp, near Antelope Mountain, and an abundance of elderberries along the river. 
When they traveled west to Lake Ponderay from their winter villages in Montana, near present-day Thompson Falls and Plains, they would have to portage around Cabinet Gorge during high water. But at other times of the year, they would canoe through the gorge and back again. Fishing upstream of the canyon, they used dip nets to catch whitefish and spears to take other species like char or bull trout. Today, the north side of the lower Clark Fork River is still a transportation route for the Kalispell as they travel to visit their relatives and friends on the Flathead Reservation of Montana. A poem by Paul Croy from Pioneer Pencil Dust, 1976. Cabinet Gorge Power Dam. The river is born of the ice packs in the Rockies' eternal peaks, where countless seeps form streams that rush to the tryst they pledge to keep. It has carved its way since the earth was young, weathering ageless stone, where it cut a gorge through the cabinet range, which blocked its journey home. Man looked at the gorge and dreamed a dream, as he has since he took man's form, when he fashioned a club to protect himself and a shelter to keep him warm. So he took his drills and his dynamite and his mammoth combustion tools, and he proved the impossible isn't so, while the skeptics talked of fools. So he writhed and shaped the native rock to the structure of his dream, and he trapped with a copper switch the strength that surged in the rampant stream. Now the gorge is blocked and the river held, and the power works man's will. But the peaks that rear toward a million stars worship creation still. Jane Fritz has been reading from her book, Legendary Lake Pondore, Idaho's Wilderness of Water, published in 2010 by Keoki Books of Sandpoint, Idaho. The Bookshelf is a production of Spokane Public Radio. With Vern Windham, I'm co-producer Nancy Roth.